All right, you can, uh, you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. That's where we're going to be for most of it. And um, Genesis chapter 18, we are uh, looking here tonight at uh, Abraham, again, more into Abraham. We're going to get, uh, we're going to speed up here in the next couple weeks and uh, probably take us maybe another two weeks to get through Abraham and then we'll move on. Um, but we're on chapter 18 of Abraham's story. And, you know, there's just so much as you start to look at, at Genesis. There's, it's, it's really hard to say, let's not talk about that and let's move on to this. And, you know, because there, there's so much here you could spend uh, forever and a day and not cover it all. Um, but we're in chapter 18, and there's some interesting things, I think, that, that take place. Remember, the study that we're really doing is we're, we're kind of taking um, the history of the Old Testament, how it developed, giving some a bit of background behind it, and also talking about the theological connections that are being made from the stories that are being developed in the Bible then and how they kind of flow through the rest of the Old Testament. We need an adult. I think she needs, he needs one. So Terry's going. Thank you, Terry. Um, all right. So we are uh, we're going through. We're taking a, a kind of the, the approach to the Old Testament, where we're looking at the theological uh, statements that are being made and developments that are that are being done in the early parts of Genesis and looking at how they weave their way throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And that will lead us into the rest of Old Testament history and the significant developments there, the covenants that God makes with His people and um, preparing us to kind of go, go through sort of the Holy Lands, as it were, and take kind of a, a flyover approach to, to getting a lay of the land and helping us to really understand our Bibles and to, to, re, to not have a fear as we approach the Old Testament. They, I, I said at the beginning that that sort of is intimidating, I think, for most people. As you crack open the Old Testament, you see a bunch of names you don't know how to pronounce, and you see a bunch of places you've never heard of or never been to, and you immediately get sort of frustrated in like reading a genealogy. You're going, why am I just reading a bunch of names? Why can't I skip all of this? And why is this even here? And so what I really want to do is, as we move through the Old Testament, remove a lot of that and develop a little bit more familiarity with the, older, the Old Testament. Um, so we've seen already that God makes some promises to Abraham. He makes one big significant promise to make him the father of a great nation. But you know Abraham's big problem is that he remains childless. He has no child, and it's hard to be a father of a great nation if you're not even a father of one, right? Uh, how, can you, how can you be a father of a great nation? And that's his question, honestly. How can I be a father of a great nation if I'm not even a father of one? And so what we see is that not only does God make this promise to him, but then he starts testing him on this promise. So he tells him, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And immediately the land goes under famine, and so he has to go into Egypt. So he doesn't even get to stay in the land. Uh, and right, right then, you know, he, he doesn't have an heir. And then later he decides, well, it seems like in the text, at least is implied, he decides, he and Sarah decide, we're going to have an heir. And so Eliezer of Damascus becomes their heir. They sort of adopt their slave as, as the heir of their household. 
Well, God says, no, 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 that's not going to be your heir. You're going to have an heir from, literally from your own loins. And so he and Sarah concoct this plan. He blames it mostly on Sarah, honestly. But uh, they concoct this plan that, that they're going to have a child from his own loins. But the only way they can do that, since Sarah is so old, is uh, Hagar, the maidservant. That makes a lot of sense. And so Abraham has a child with Hagar. And once again, God comes to Abraham and says, no, no, no. No, it's not going to be Eleazar of Damascus. It's not going to be Ishmael. Although, in spite of Abraham's shortcomings and trying to fulfill the promises of God his own way, God still ends up blessing Ishmael and still ends up blessing all of those people that are connected to Abram. We, we saw Lot even. When, when, they, when they're together, Lot is prosperous, and as soon as Lot departs, in the story at least, as soon as he departs, he gets kidnapped and all of his possessions with him, and Abram has to go rescue him, right? So there's uh, these themes of seeing God make a promise to Abram, and then finding God actually fulfilling that promise in spite of Abram's lack of willingness to go along and trust in God's plan for his life. And that continues to kind of be a theme, but what we do also see is Abram's sanctification along the way. We saw last week that not only does God, does God visit Abram and, and renew the promise, but he says to him, uh, you know, your, your child, though he's not going to uh, prosper, I, I, will, I will prosper him, and I will still make of him a great nation. But then we also see Abram getting the assurance that he's going to have a child by Sarah. And he laughs at this promise. But what we're going to see today is that Abraham is beginning to learn. And he's beginning to get it. And Sarah, okay, a little bit different. But, but Abram is, Abraham now is, is growing in his trust of the Lord. And I think that's implied in the text if it's not explicitly stated but as we go through chapter 18, I think we're going to see some really interesting things. Last week we saw that Abram also, his name, his and Sarah's name were changed from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. And one uh, promise that, or one thing that was told to them that they must do, uh, that Abraham must do, is circumcise every male in his, in his household. Whether that be a slave, whether that be a child, whether that be a, whoever it was, they had to be circumcised if they were males. And we saw that the reason for that is a reminder of the covenant promise. And for the Jews thereafter, it became a reminder of the faith that Abraham had in the promises of God to make of him a great nation. And so the Jews in, uh, followed suit with Abraham. Now, um, this morning, or this, this, this morning, I'm lost. I am Wednesday, man. This was not... This, this, this is a long day. Okay, so uh, anyway, but uh, uh, this evening uh, we're looking at Genesis chapter 18, and there's an interesting scene that happens here with Abraham as he's resting under the oaks of Mamre. Uh, look there in chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Uh, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. 
while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf and had that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And so here we see this picture where Abraham is visited by these, the text calls them three men, okay? So he's visited by these three men, at the beginning of chapter 18, and what does he begin to do? He begins to entertain them lavishly, all right? So he starts to entertain them, as is the custom. So he's doing exactly what you're supposed to do, uh, and this is really important, okay? Now, you just have to trust me on this. It's really important. Earmark this. What he's doing here is a model of the custom. When someone walks into your town and you see them, You take them into your home, you feed them, and you prepare them for their journey on their way, okay? That's going to be really important when we get to the next chapter. Just earmark that, what Abraham does here. He entertains them. He gives them food. He gives them the the finest of food. And this time, though, what we see, there's a little bit of a difference. The three men that are coming to him are coming to him with a purpose. And he, he, he calls them, he says this at the very beginning. Um, we get a narrator's uh, statement, and the Lord appeared to him. Uh, but when he addresses them, he says in verse 3, uh, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant." That doesn't necessarily mean that he totally recognizes them right away or that, he underst- that he's calling one of these three men God. He, he simply uses the term Adonai, which is uh, ge- a generic term you could use of, of really anybody that you wanted to kind of put in a place of importance as you would like a guest that was coming. And so we don't exactly know how much of this is connecting with Abraham just yet. We're about to find out. But, um, but anyway, he says... Uh, you know, he gets the water and gets the, 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 the flour and tells Sarah to start baking and he goes and prepares the meat and he has all of this stuff done. And you notice with, which, with what haste he is going about his business doing this, right? But it, it, it becomes apparent that the intention of their visit once again is to promise to Abraham, but this time they're guaranteeing a specific time of fulfillment, a specific time of fulfillment. And look at what he says here in verse 9. He says, They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn out? Uh, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Uh Uh-oh. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, 
no, but you did laugh. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> so here, here's this specific fulfillment that, that is given to, to Abraham and Sarah, that now the promises are not, yes, one is going to come from you. Yes, one is going to come from your own loins. Yes, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. It's not generic promises now. There is a specific, I'm going to come back to you this time next year, and Sarah is going to be with child. So there's a specific date on the promise that's given to him. And what does Sarah do whenever she hears this promise? She's standing behind the door, and they're out there, and they're talking. And notice they even ask, where is Sarah? And she says, well, she's inside. And he's like, okay, well, you, I'm going to come back here, and you're, she's going to have a child. And inside, we know that they don't, they don't hear Sarah. They don't know where Sarah is. They, they just, they're they learn from the first. Okay, she's inside. They're talking to Abraham. When she laughs, the Lord knows it, right? Okay, that's important too because we know here uh, he sees all. He sees everything that's happening. And so we get a little bit more information about this person that's standing in front of Abraham. Who exactly is this? Well, we're told several times. I want you to notice something in your Bibles. You notice where Abraham addresses him as Adonai, just uh, El lowercase o-r-d. Some of you already know this, but I think it bears repeating. The, then the, the word changes to capital L, small capitals o-r-d, which indicates that the word behind that word is Yahweh. Okay? So that, that, that tells us that the divine name is being used here. We see three men walk up to Abraham. We also see the narrator telling us at 18.1, and the Lord appeared to him. And how is Lord used there? Capital L, small capital O-R-D. Okay. Abraham says, O Lord, with all lowercase, just Adonai. Uh, and then we see the narrator switch when he says, the Lord said, uh, look in verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. So out of these three men, one of them is the chief talker of the bunch. The other two seem to not really be talking that much. The one doing the chief talking is identified by the author with the divine name. That's significant, okay? And it, it does trip a lot of people up. We're going to talk about it more in a second. But it does trip a lot of people up as to why that's there and, and how we understand that. But make no mistake about it. The author is saying, Yahweh said... To Abram or Abraham. There I go. I couldn't, get, I couldn't say Abram two weeks ago, and I'd say Abraham. Now I'm supposed to say Abraham, and I can't say Abraham. What is Abraham thinking right now? Yeah, well, that's a good question. What, what is Abraham thinking right now? Well, you said the narrator. He's yeah. identifying uh, Yahweh. Yeah. If he, it, my point is, if he didn't know when they first walked up, I think he does now, okay, that there has been now an explicit promise given to him. And if he didn't recognize them, who they were at first, he does now. We don't, we don't know, but he obviously doesn't use the name right right away. So that was all my point was there. Um, so there's the promise of the child that's given in 18.1, and it should tell the reader that Abraham is fulfilling what Yahweh is requiring of him. Look back in chapter 17.1. Uh, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. What does he tell him? 
walk before me blameless. Okay? So there, we know that there were some indiscretions on Abram's part, and there's going to be still some to come. Okay? He's not going to be perfect. But the Lord has told him, walk before me blameless. And here we see in the next chapter the fulfillment of the promise. Now, it's, now we've got a real, like we've got a date on this baby. All right? We know when this baby's coming. Okay? So it, it kind of gives the impression, at least, or we should walk away with the impression, that Abraham is beginning to understand the promises of the Lord, trust in the promises of the Lord even more, and walk before the Lord blamelessly. And, and is, is fulfilling what the Lord is requiring of him in 17.1. And then Abraham has shown this, we've, we see this noble character that he's kind of demonstrating through his generous hospitality. Um, now, the reason that that is important is because I think what we're supposed to do, I'm pretty sure what we're supposed to do, is see all of these cues that the author gives us in chapter 18 of Abraham seeing them, running to them, running to Sarah, saying, fast! get the cakes ready, running to the field, killing the calf, then running here and running there and running there and running here, all to satisfy the Lord here that's in front of him, right? But now compare that with the hosts of Sodom and the sluggishness of Lot's household in the next chapter. So just look forward to the next chapter in chapter 19, verse 2 and 3. He says, um, well, I'll read verse 1 too. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in town square. Now keep going. Verse 5. He says, and they called to Lot, uh, where are the men who came to you tonight? So here's the actions of the, the men of Sodom. Where are the men that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And so Lot goes out to talk to them. But then look at verses 14, and 14 to 16. Where is it? I'll flip the page here. Okay. So Lot went out and said to his sons, uh, his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to, uh, he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters, by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. Um, this is peculiar. I've always found this passage peculiar. And I think it's completely the opposite of the reaction to the Lord that we see on Abraham's part, who is fast and running and ready to do what the Lord has, to, to serve the Lord. And here, Lot it seems to be it, eh, sort of surrounded by apathy, right? Uh, it's, it's just a different response that we get from Lot in the next chapter. Um, Yeah, 
I'm not saying that he's not, that he's not accommodating to them bringing them in their house. Was that what you were asking? Yeah, I think he's recognizing, we, we see in Hebrews too, that there, is, that there is Lot the righteous, right? We see in Hebrews 11, I think it's Hebrews 11, am I right on that? Am I making that up? Is it First Peter? Okay. Um, where, uh, where, where Lot is righteous. I'm not trying to make the argument that Lot is not, does not believe in the Lord or that he doesn't bring him into his home. But I do think there's, a, there's a, a difference in the way the two respond, where the Lord is telling him, I am going to destroy this city. I'm going to lay it waste. And Lot at, tells his sons-in-law, get up. And they're kind of like, I think he's kidding about that. Okay. And then, but then the next day, we see Lot, not in a hurry, to get up and go and do as the Lord had told him to do and obey the commands of the Lord. And so uh, I, I grant you that it, that you know, we may be jumping to conclusions here, but it, it does seem like there is a difference in response from Abraham in chapter 18 to Lot in chapter 19 and the way that they respond uh, to the Lord, bring him into their house. Um, all right, so here we have this identity of the speaker that's been called out in chapter 18. We see it also in chapter 19 where it's using the divine name and, um, it, it, that, and there's a lot of people over the course of history that have debated about this kind of thing uh, ad nauseum, all right? But it seems to be very clear in the text, at least it's told to us, that it is Yahweh that it has appeared to Abraham in the form of a man, that Yahweh himself has appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. So you look there first in 18.1, and the Lord appeared to him. So the narrator is telling you, he wants you to know, the Lord for sure appeared to Abraham uh, there under the, under the oak trees. We see there in 13, uh, so verse 13 here, um, and the Lord said to Abraham, we see it, uh, it again in verse 14 where he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Again, using the divine name there again in 17. Uh, the Lord said, shall I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? We see it in verse 20, 22, 26, 33. We see it on through uh, chapter 18. We see it again in chapter 19 as he's talking to, uh, or as, they're, they're, as, as uh, Lot is talking about what the Lord is going to do um, in chapter 19. And what we also see is that there is a difference in the other two men that are, that are with this the, the talking man, the one that does the talking to Abraham. There is a difference there because we see that in, in chapter 19, verse 1. We see that uh, first in eighteen eighteen, where the Lord stays behind. He says, uh, seeing that Abraham shall surely become great and mighty and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I realize that was the wrong verse that I meant to put down, but he stays with Abraham and two other men go on to Sodom. And we see in verse 19 where it identifies these two men, these two men, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So it identifies them clearly as angels, but it doesn't identify the, the other one as angels, but it does clearly identify these as angels. And so the, the times in the Old Testament when this figure, this, this uh, seemingly divine figure appears, it's commonly referred to as the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord, uh, capital L, lower capital, smaller capital L, uh, O-R-D. And so it's usually called the angel of the Lord. But if you look at, at, at 
places like, let's, let's take a look at um, one we haven't done yet. Let's look at uh, Numbers 22-23. Somebody read that one when you get there. It's on your packet as well. You remember this story, Balaam's donkey? One of the funniest stories in the entire Bible. Uh, Balaam walking his donkey, and the donkey just won't do what he says because the donkey's seeing this figure with a sword in front of him. He's like, I ain't going that way. <laughs> and, and Balaam's like, why won't you go that way? And starts whipping him, and the Lord opens the donkey's mouth, and he sa- the donkey says to Balaam, why are you whipping me? Haven't I been a good servant to you all these years? And the funniest part of the story is that Balaam, without missing a beat, just talks right back to the donkey. <laughs> I mean, he's like, I, I got to think, maybe, I don't know, maybe the author just skips over the dramatic pause that was there and the fear that struck Balaam when his donkey starts talking to him. Or maybe Balaam just thought it was normal and starts talking back to his donkey. Either way, uh, Balaam doesn't at first see the angel of the Lord, and then his eyes are open to see the angel of the Lord standing there uh, with a sword in his hand. But then we get, we get some other ones that we're going to look at here in, in just a minute, um, uh, particularly in Judges. But you have this figure that appears to be different than just an ordinary angel. It's different than just an ordinary angel, and he's referred to, as we've already said, by the Lord's name, And we see that in chapter 18 again. But then he's also treated differently than other angels. So he's treated, uh, well, differently. So I want to compare two passages. I want you to just see the, the difference that's here in these passages. Look at Judges 13, 15 to, uh, 15 to 25. That's in your packet there. Should be. Somebody read that out loud. Hey, that was good. You just say it with confidence and just keep going. <laughs> Nobody here is bold enough to question you on it. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so we see this interesting scene where the angel of the Lord appears, and the, they, what, is it, what are they told to do? They build a, make a sacrifice, right? Make a sacrifice to God. 
Well, and then the angel of the Lord goes up in the flames of this sacrifice. And that is a cue to them that who they saw was God, right? Because they say that to one another. We're going to die now because we've seen God. You know, this is like the, you know, it's the classified secret. (laughs) Once you know it, you have to be killed, (laughs) right? And so they're they're convinced, well, we've got to die now because we've we've seen the Lord. And wait a second, wait a second. If he wanted to kill us, wouldn't he have done so? (laughs) You know, I I don't know that he's done that. And so, but what what they're understanding is that the sacrifice that we made what was to this angel of the Lord here, okay? Now, compare that scene to what happens in Revelation, all right? So look at Revelation 19.10. I'll, I'll read it out loud. Then I fell down, this is John speaking, then I fell down at his feet. This is an angel that he's talking about. This is the hymn. I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Notice the angel's reaction here. It seems as though the angel is, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's not good. No, don't do that. That's not the reaction that we get of the angel of the Lord there in Judges. So we see that the angel of the Lord is not only does he carry the divine name often, but he, he also is treated differently than the other angels that we see appear in the scriptures, whom people are see as majestic and often fearful and are tempted to bow down and worship them. And they're like, no, they defer worship, not to themselves, but to Christ. And that's not what we see with the angel of the Lord ever. And so... Uh, the best assessment, I think, of this character as he appears in the Scripture is that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Another way of saying that is the second person of the Trinity. Another way of saying that is God the Son. The pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Okay. I want you to think about how Paul develops this in Colossians, what he says. Um, through him all things were made by him all things hold together what does John say in John 1.1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God by him all things were made and without him was not anything made that was made so the understanding of the New Testament authors about Jesus is not only that he was eternal or that he is eternal Not only that he existed before he was enfleshed, incarnate, but that he is the one through whom Yahweh has always revealed himself to humanity. So when when John says he is the word of God, how did God create the world? Through his spoken word. So the very revelation of Yahweh's voice even has been the second person of the Trinity. And what do we see here in the angel of the Lord, except I think you have to conclude that this is Yahweh standing before us. That's what the, certainly what the biblical authors expect you to conclude. Well, that should blow some of our categories. 
<laughs> right? So then what is the burning bush? What is it? Second person of the Trinity. The method through which God has always revealed himself to humanity is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. I am. He refers to himself that way, doesn't he? Yes. Before Abraham was. I am. <laughs> here's the other fascinating part, I think. There's a lot of people in our world that will say, and you've probably heard this from time to time, Jesus never claimed to be God. Right? You hear this? You, have you heard this before? Yes? Blake, say it louder. Yes, you have. Bart Ehrman says it a lot. Bart Ehrman says it. Hey, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you certainly can't walk away from the Bible taking it, taking it seriously with that conclusion, but the Jews standing around certainly did think he thought he said that. They certainly did. They were ready to stone him for, they say, for blasphemy. So it was certainly true that they thought he claimed to be God, that they interpreted the sayings that he had that he said to be, to be God. When we get to eschatology, to study the end times, when we get to Matthew 26, whenever I'm preaching, probably eight, nine, ten years from now, um, we'll, uh, we, will, we will deal with Jesus' statement to Caiaphas. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. That statement is powerful. And what does Caiaphas do? Grab his clothes, tears them. Do we need any other reason to kill this man? He's guilty of blasphemy. We'll talk about that statement in Daniel 7. When we get there, again, some of you may not even be there by then. <laughs> I may not be there by then. <laughs> Who knows what will happen by then. But, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when we get there, we'll, we'll certainly deal with that. But here is Jesus uh, or we should, it should probably, I should probably say here, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is, let's say, partly different than what we mean when we say Jesus. Jesus would be God the Son in the flesh, right? Okay, we're not talking about God the Son in taking on flesh just yet, so this is before he's incarnate, right? Go ahead, Luke. Oh, Jeff, I'm sorry. It's been that kind of day, man. So, Sorry. <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to go through the Rolodex of times when God speaks to people in the Old Testament, but I think so. Yeah, I think for the most part. There is, there is a, an exception to that. There is an exception to that, and that's not until we get to the New Testament, where we actually see the second person of the Trinity in flesh in Jesus Christ, and Peter and the, then James and John, who are on the Mount of Transfiguration, hear the voice of God the Father speaking. And it terrifies them. <laughs> and they fall down on their faces, right? So there are some exceptions to that, but I would say that it's incredibly rare. But I think, I think the revelation of... Um, in fact, I think even in the burning bush, it says the angel of the Lord was in the burning bush, if I'm not mistaken. I, I do believe it says that. I don't want to quote it because I can't remember it exactly, but, but um, it makes that, that statement.
I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, why would Yahweh why does he talk to himself in third, about himself in third person? Well, no. <laughs> why is he saying, like, don't give, offer me any food or offering if he himself is Yahweh? Yeah. Um, I, well, I think, for one, there's a couple of things that are, that are clearly going on there. He's not totally telling them who he is. Okay. And, right, so they, they're not totally sure in the passage who he is until he is gone. And so he's telling them, I'm not going to eat it, but if you offer it, offer the offering to, to God. What the people do the interpreting for us. So the scene is kind of sort of complicated because they light this thing on fire and the, he goes up in the flames. But the people that are there, Manoah and his wife, then interpret what they were to take from that. And what we're to take from that is that he was the one that received it. And him going up in the offering is him actually receiving the offering. And if you will, taking the offering to the Lord himself, to the Father. Yeah. That's the way I would interpret that, yeah. There are cultures that when a greater sin is a lesser, it is the greater going and earning the lesser. And here's God taking care of it. Yep. Yes, yeah. The greater sending, the lesser, yeah. And Jesus clearly in the New Testament makes clear he's playing that role, that he's, he is in that role. I am in the role of the son. And he, he'll, he'll make statements in John where he, on one hand, says, I and the Father are one. And then he says, God is greater than I. The Father is greater than I. Right, so it's left to us to parse that and to say, what does he mean there? And is he and the Father one, or is the Father greater than he? And the answer is, of course, yes. yes. Right? When, this, when the Scriptures make two affirmative statements, you say, they're both true. <laughs> it's for me to determine how they're both true, right? But I understand them both as true. And, and, and I think Timothy's hitting on the right point there, is that God the Son, Jesus Christ in the New Testament, is sent. He is the one being sent to carry out the message of the Father and salvation that the Father has planned for humanity. Um, he is fulfilling that role and has taken that role. Right. Has nothing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, That's a good transition. Let's go there now. Uh, so he says, so uh, here we, we, we're, gonna, we're moving on to the end of chapter 18 where Abraham is going to intercede on behalf of Sodom. And so the Lord, I, I want you to pay attention to this because the Lord uh, tells Abraham of his plan to destroy Sodom on the basis of his covenantal promise. God has made a promise to Abraham. Do you remember what the promise was? Through you, all the nations will what? Will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, let's look at how he reasons as he goes down. He says, um, in, starting in verse 16 of chapter 18, 
Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide? So the Lord, here's Yahweh. Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and, listen to this, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. What is he about to do? He's about to destroy two cities, wipe them off the face of the earth, them and all of their people. And he asks, presumably he asks the two other angels that are standing there, I would just also assume within earshot of Abraham, intentionally, shall I hide what I'm about to do from the Lord, from Abraham, seeing as how I have promised that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, he's about to destroy two cities. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Should I hide this from him? Or should I give him a chance to bless the nations? Right? This is what Abraham is given a chance to do here, is to bless the nations. How? By interceding on behalf of the nations to God himself. That's what, that's what this whole plea arrangement is designed to show you, is that Abraham, is, this is one way in which Abraham is blessing the nations. He's interceding on their behalf. We're going to see the same thing in, on Mount Sinai, similar thing anyway, in, on Mount Sinai with Moses. Get away from me so that I can let my anger destroy these people. Moses stands in between God and the people, right? Interceding on their behalf. We're going to see more intercessors come. Okay, so he says, uh, So, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to come uh, to keep the way of the Lord by doing uh, righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have, what they have done, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So again, on the basis of the covenantal promise, through you all the nations of the earth would bless, he says that. On that basis, he's going to reveal to Abraham what he's about to do so that Abraham obviously has an opportunity to intercede on behalf of the nations. And so then uh, there's a quote by Eugene Roop that I have uh, put down here, which I thought was perfect. He says, acting as the one chosen to promote life, Abraham proposes that the future of everyone be determined not by the wicked ones in the midst of the community, but by the righteous ones. You get that? In this bargaining that's going back and forth, Abraham, what he's really saying is, Lord, if you're going to destroy a city or if you're, if you're, your judgment on a city, make it be on the basis of the righteous ones, not on the basis of the wicked ones. In other words, not I'm going to destroy that city because there are wicked people there. Make it I'm going to save that city because there are righteous people there. And so he's he begins a haggling process, <laughs> a negotiating process of whittling it down. Um, so uh, God agrees, it seems like, to this and to this way of thinking, and he spares the righteous 
in his judgment. We're going to see this play out across the entire Old Testament where, God's, where God is going to judge a particular place and yet he spares the righteous in the judgment. Uh, we see this in regards to uh, Rahab, the harlot in the city of Ai, uh, Jericho, Jericho, sorry, city of Jericho. We see this in Assyria with Jonah in, in chapters 3 and 4 of Jonah. We see this with Israel in Ezekiel chapter 14, 12, 20. And those are just a few examples of when he does this, where, he, where he's going to judge a place and he says that the righteous will, will be spared from judgment. And so he, he, he takes them. But what it also shows, the Lord has this proposal as, uh, to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, as Timothy was bringing up, and it seems like this is the narr- narrator's way of kind of figuratively describing what God is doing, but saying that God always thoroughly investigates the crime before passing a sentence on the city. And, and I think one of the really important things that we should note there is what brings condemnation on a person? There's a witness, right? Not just a witness. How many witnesses? Two witnesses. Specifically in the law, how is condemnation brought? Two witnesses. Two, yeah, two or three, but two, but two, a minimum of two witnesses carries out the judgment or ensures the judgment. And so here we see this uh, figurative way of describing it here at the end. Now, some people will make a big deal out of that statement that he says, look, I, I'm, I don't know if that's what's happening down there or not. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to figure it out. If, I, if it's not true, then, well, then I'll know. Now, if we take that statement like it, it reads there, then, and we don't consult the rest of Scripture that gives us the idea that God is all-knowing, well, then what we walk away with is that something like what open theists describe. God doesn't know the future, and so he's learning along with us. There are people out there that will, say, will tell you that, that, that God doesn't know the future. He's learning along with us. And they'll use a verse like this to explain that. But you also have to understand the way language works and the way people are describing the actions of God. And I think what it's cluing us in on, remember the first audience that's opening this up. The first audience has the law. They're reading this, and here they're seeing two witnesses going down to pronounce a judgment. And that tells them, this is, I'm God, I'm just, and this is the way I've always worked. Two witnesses, right? So um, Abraham, he first pleads to the city for 50 righteous. And this is really, I think, biblically considered about half of a small city. We see in Amos that a, a small city is 100. And so 50 is like, well, if, if half the city, if half the small city is righteous, will you, would, you, would you spare them? Okay, yeah, if half the city. Well, it whittles all the way down to just 10, 10 righteous, and there's not even quite that in the city, all right? But what does God do? Does he just, well, there's not 10, so just destroy everybody? No. He picks Lot up, and he takes him out to the border in spite of the fact that Lot is less than enthusiastic about going to the border. His family is less than enthusiastic. His son-in-laws are not there, they, so what? So they, he takes him out by hand. And his wife, obviously, really doesn't want to leave. She meets her not-so-pleasant demise, right? All right. So, um, but uh, another quote here at the very end by Bruce Waltke. It is now established that the judgment 
uh, on Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the paradigm for God's future judgments. Peter will bring this up. He'll reference Sodom and Gomorrah as judgment that's coming in, in the end. But it's the paradigm for, future, for God's future judgment. The Lord investigates the accusations thoroughly. He ensures two objective witnesses, as, we'll, as we see in Deuteronomy 19, 15. Uh, he ensures two objective witnesses. He involves the faithful in his judgment. What does he do? What have we seen happen in the minor prophets? But God's sending a minor, a pro, not a minor prophet, he sends a prophet to these places to tell them of what's going to happen to them. You, you need to know this. So repent now, right? Um, he involves the faithful in his judgment. He displays active compassion for the suffering and prioritizes divine mercy over indignant wrath. Uh, hence the, the statement there that, that not, the city's not going to be destroyed if even ten are righteous. So we see that, that chapter 18 of Genesis is actually doing a, a lot, to, to, no pun intended, to set up the story of Abraham and help you understand how he has now really, he's, he's beginning to, to get it and to trust. How the promise has been renewed to Abraham yet again and how God is, is really faithful and just. And he doesn't destroy people on a whim. We're going to even see in the conquest when they walk into the land of Canaan, it's not just that they're going through in a mass genocide killing all these people for absolutely no reason. He tells Abraham back in chapter 15 that the, that the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. So 430 years later, when the sins of the Amorites are finally full, now is the time that you can go in and actually judge them because they're all wicked. And even in spite of that, as they go in, there's still some righteous that are spared. And the people that are going in on the conquest don't all make it. We see with Achan and several others that, they, that they're wicked. And God purges the evil even amongst his own people. Right? So I think it's setting up a long history of God's faithfulness and his justice as he executes that on the world. Questions? Comments, concerns? Potentially true. Walkie, Walkie says something different about that, and I, and I think um, it, it seems like Abraham's expectation is anyone less than ten, you're going to spare not the whole city, you're going to spare those people. So if there were nine righteous, you would spare those nine and and kill the rest of the city. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's speculation. It's speculation. I, we, we're not told. We're not told how many kids if any, that they had. We're not told any of that kind of stuff. We're told sons-in-law. We're told daughters. Yeah, oh, I think that's true for sure. But I... Yeah, right, right. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, um, the, the intercessor, the one standing in between God and his people, 
or God in people is, a, is an important theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, beginning here with Abraham, but we'll see it in Moses, we'll see it in uh, David, we'll see it in so many others, and ultimately we'll see it in Jesus. Yeah. Questions? That's true. Yeah, um, you actually see this again in Revelation, two witnesses. Um, there, there's going to be a lot. We, we have three minutes, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not about to open up a whole can of Revelation on the, on the, on the time here. But yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, you do have two, two witnesses that go out. And there's a lot of debate on who those two witnesses are, what the, what, but it's, I think it's abundantly clear what function those two witnesses play. And the function that those two witnesses play is a condemnation of the world, who we see just even a couple chapters earlier don't repent. They're not interested in repentance. They're interested in killing these because they've been a torment to them while they were on the earth, is what they say. And so we, we see there in Revelation chapter 11 these two, two examples uh, uh, that are bringing condemnation on the world, God's judgment on the world. And um, so, yeah, my own ideas of who the two witnesses are, but we won't go there yet. So, anyway... God has and always does use witnesses. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a, a time tonight to just open your word and just, and just look at what it's saying and what it means and why that matters to us. And we're grateful that you are a God who is just and a God who uh, fulfills his promise. And we see tons of promises being made. And in spite of Abraham's faithlessness, you are faithful. And it tells us in spite of our faithlessness, you are faithful. And we know that we have the greatest gift of all, of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we are grateful for that. You have been faithful to us. And we know that the outstanding promise that's left to be fulfilled is Jesus coming again. And we long for that day. The longer we look around at the world, the nastiness that's here, the filthiness that we find ourselves in daily, the struggles that we have with our own flesh, we long for that day when Jesus makes all things right. And so we pray for that. We long for it. In Jesus' name, amen.